Six minutes left to go under that in the second. UMBC up 12. Lyles, the tough loader, game high 28. Under four left to go, up 14. The steal. Arkel Lamar sitting in the corner, ready to hit the three. UMBC, time to start celebrating. And on the other side, insane, insane. shock and awe. As Tony Bennett and company going home early, the top overall seed loses to a 16 for the first time in men's tournament history. Which it was a struggle from the start. That second half, though, got out of control. Can you pinpoint what took place and what the problem was? Yeah, no, we, we got our butts whipped. That was not even close. And that's first a credit to um, the job Ryan did, Coach Odom. Their, their uh, offense was very hard to guard. They shot it well. We kept getting broken down uh, and did a poor job. And, you know, uh, I told our guys we had a historic season, historic season in terms of most wins in the ACC. A week ago, we're cutting down the nets and the confetti's falling. And then we make history by being the first one seed to lose. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people will be happy about that. And it stings. Um, but trying to tell the guys in there, you know, this is, this is life. It can't define you. Um, you enjoyed the good times, and you got to be able to take the bad times. When you step into the arena, and a lot of people don't understand that, when you step into the arena and you're in the arena, the consequences can be historic losses, tough losses, great wins, and you have to deal with it. And that's, that's the job. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. Uh, that was last year's March Madness NCAA tournament when the number one overall seed, Virginia Cavaliers, lost to the University of Maryland Baltimore County Retrievers. Uh, first time ever that a number one seed had lost to a 16 seed. If you're not a basketball fan, uh, that would be like the Grandview wrestling team not winning the national championship. That's how much of an upset uh, that would be. Anyway, what, what I really wanted you to pay attention to, the coach of the Grandview wrestling team sitting in the front row, if you're wondering why people are, are clapping. Anyway, um, what I really wanted you to notice is the words and the demeanor, the attitude of Virginia's coach following that loss. I think some coaches would have looked for any reason not to have to talk to a reporter after a devastating loss like that. Uh, some coaches maybe would have thrown their players under the bus and blamed them for the loss. Some coaches would have been rude and short with the reporter, uh, but not Tony Bennett. I, I watch in amazement as he just displays this class and he uh, congratulates the other team, praises the other coach, and then he simply says, this is life. You're going to have historic losses, you're going to have great wins, and you have to deal with it. So that's where I want to start today. How are you dealing with it? Are you winning at life? Are you losing at life? How are you responding to the circumstances in your life? I wonder how you would respond to uh, these words from Jesus' brother James. He's the author of one of the books in the New Testament. He begins it this way. Let's read this out loud together. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, I know we're in church, but if we weren't in church, we would want to tell Jesus' brother James what he could do with this verse, wouldn't we? I mean, when we're experiencing troubles of any kind, what we want is for the troubles to go away, as far away as possible. And so let's, let's make sure we understand what it is James is trying to say. What is he talking about here? The starting place is what is he not saying? He's not saying we should be joyful about our troubles. 
He's not saying you lose the game, you should celebrate. He's not saying, you know, if you get a horrible diagnosis, you should do a happy dance. He's not saying if a really important relationship in your life comes to an end, that's like the best day ever. No, what he is saying is when we experience troubles, when troubles come into our life of any kind, it becomes an opportunity for great joy. An opportunity for great joy. And so for followers of Jesus, one of the questions we can ask ourselves on a pretty regular basis Am I taking advantage of these opportunities? Because life's going to give us plenty of opportunities, plenty of trouble, plenty of suffering, plenty of pain, and how are we dealing with it? Our story today, John chapter 11, is one of these opportunities. Uh, so you've got Jesus, and he spends about three years with his 12 closest disciples pretty much every day there together. But of course, there are other people in Jesus' life who mean a great deal to him, like a family in Bethany, a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And this is a story that I think a lot of us are very familiar with, but I want us as best as possible to try to get into the heart of what is happening in this story. And so we have to begin with the idea, at this point in the story, Jesus is an outlaw. He's not the outlaw Josie Wales, he's the outlaw Jesus Christ. Go back to John chapter 10, and you start to see where this comes from, how this happens. In John 10, we're told it's uh, Hanukkah, in, in the winter, in December, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple to celebrate Hanukkah. He's teaching. People are trying to figure out who really is this guy, Jesus. Should we, we've heard about him. We've heard of his miracles. We've heard him teach. What do we make of this? And Jesus says something in John 10 that is offensive to a lot of the people. He says, the Father and I are one. God the Father and I, we are united, we are one and the same. And John writes that people pick up stones, they want to kill Jesus because this is blasphemy. It's a sin punishable by death under Jewish religious law of the time to claim to be God. They try to arrest Jesus, and John writes, he slips away, he and his disciples flee Jerusalem, and they end up over in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Nobody knows exactly where uh, John is doing his baptizing at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, but it says that's where they go. Some people think it's up closer to the Sea of Galilee, but the traditional uh, understanding is Bethany beyond the Jordan is just you know, pretty much straight east of Jerusalem. And while they are here, hanging out, hiding out, making sure they don't get arrested, word comes to Jesus in Bethany beyond the Jordan that Lazarus, his good friend, is sick. Lazarus is in Bethany. Uh, John tells us it's just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's really, really close. So if you leave Jerusalem heading east, you go downhill into the Kidron Valley and then immediately back up the hill, going up that hill, that's the Mount of Olives. It's really close. It's about 30 miles, 25 to 30 miles from Bethany beyond the Jordan to Jerusalem. Jesus is actually pretty close to where Lazarus is. It would not have taken Jesus very long at all to get to where Lazarus is, but he has a couple of things to consider. First of all, there's a practical consideration. His disciples are kind of in freak-out mode. They are scared if they get anywhere near Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. If you read through the story, when they finally decide to go to Lazarus in John 11, verse 16, uh, Thomas, doubting Thomas, says, let's go to and die with him. They're convinced bad things await them if they go back toward Jerusalem. But the primary consideration seems to be a theological consideration. What Jesus is doing in this story is trying to help us understand something really important about who God is, 
and about what God is up to in this world. And so, go back to James, he talks about troubles coming into our life and they are opportunities for great joy. In John 11, there's a lot of trouble. Jesus is in trouble, the disciples are in trouble, Lazarus is in trouble, his sisters Mary and Martha are in trouble, and Jesus views it all as an opportunity for great joy. The first thing he says after he gets the news that Lazarus is sick, he says to his disciples, Lazarus' illness will not end in death. Instead, he says, this is all about the glory of God, displaying the glory of God. And then they wait for two days, don't do anything, just kind of stay there. And then Jesus says, all right, it's time for us to go to Bethany. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and we need to go wake him up. The disciples are taking Jesus very literally at this point. And they're also scared to death and looking for any reason not to go to Lazarus. So they say, oh, come on, Jesus, if he's just asleep, we don't really need to go. He'll wake up on his own. We can just stay here. And so Jesus has to speak plainly to his disciples. And let's read together what he says, verses 14 and 15. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. It's important for us to make sure we're not kind of reading through this story backwards, from the end to the beginning. It's a familiar story. A lot of people know it ends with Jesus raising Lazarus from death to life, but the disciples do not know that's how this story is going to end. They've never seen resurrection before. They, they hope that the resurrection is possible. They hope, but they've never seen someone raise from death to life. And so when Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there, he's dead and I'm glad, how do you suppose they responded? How would you respond? I don't know what trouble you're going through, but if some well-meaning Christian were to say to you, I'm glad God's not showing up for you. I'm glad God's not answering your prayer. I'm glad God's not doing anything to change your circumstances because now, now you'll really believe. I think that would feel cold-hearted, callous. So is that who Jesus is, or what's he doing here? What, what's, what's this about? And again, I think the last five words are the key. Now you will really believe. Now you will really believe. This is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. If you look at what he's been doing over the course of three years, one of the primary things Jesus is interested in is the development of faith. So early on in his ministry, when the disciples are with Jesus on a boat in the middle of a storm and they're freaking out, Jesus is interested in the development of their faith. When a Roman soldier says to Jesus, you can just say the word from wherever you are and my servant will be healed, Jesus stops and makes sure everyone around here says, he says, did you hear what this guy said? I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. Jesus is interested in the development of our faith. And that's what's going on in this story. John chapter 11, he's developing our faith. What kind of faith is Jesus trying to develop in us? Let's go back to his brother James. And when troubles come into your life, consider it an opportunity for joy. Why, James? Why are op uh, troubles an opportunity for joy? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Read this out loud with me. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Your endurance has a chance to grow. Jesus is trying to develop an enduring faith in us. In the Greek word for endurance is kind of fun, hupomone, hupomone, let's all say that together. Hupomone, one more time, hupomone, comes from two Greek words, hupo, which a preposition that means by or under, 
Meno, uh, it means to abide or to remain. John chapter 14, Jesus will say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me, abide in me. He's using this word. And when you put the two of them together, it often would get translated steadfast in kind of the older English translations. Steadfast, uh, now it gets translated endurance. The idea is you see this tree that's being bent by the wind, bent by the storm. It, it, it's moving, but it's staying planted at the same time. It's withstanding the storm. It's standing firm, steadfast, enduring. That's what hupomone is getting at. But there's also another nuance to the definition that's really important for us to understand. It's this idea to continue to be present. To continue to be present. So you think of the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything that you have. I, I don't know about you, Different times when trouble, circumstances, hard things happen in life, a lot of people have this tendency to kind of check out emotionally or to withdraw emotionally or to just kind of emotionally give up. So they might be present physically, their, their body might be there, but emotionally they're gone. And so part of what this is getting at is there's a physical understanding of being steadfast and standing firm, but there's also a spiritual and psychological, uh, emotional kind of understanding. What does it mean to be a, a person who endures? It means I don't give up. I don't withdraw. I don't kind of shut down emotionally. I stay present with Jesus in the moment no matter what is going on. So I think the cross actually gives us an image of what does it mean to have an enduring faith, a faith that is able to stay present with Jesus. So um, past, present, and future, if you spend too much time focused on the past, too much time focused on the future, you end up not staying present. And the problem with that, there's multiple problems, but you can only love in the present. So think of the disciples in, in this story. What if they spend too much time focused on the past? Uh, Jesus says to them, Lazarus is dead, and they think about it. They've been just, the news came a couple of days ago. We've just been sitting here. Why didn't Jesus act sooner? Why didn't he do something two days ago? Maybe he doesn't actually love Lazarus. Maybe he doesn't actually love us. Maybe we made a bad decision three years ago, dropping our nets, leaving everything, following after Jesus. No wonder people think we're fools. You could see how they could start to spiral to that kind of unhealthy place if they focus too much on the past. Similarly, if there's too much focused on the future, they're walking from Bethany where they're hiding out from the authorities, walking closer and closer to Jerusalem with every step, and maybe they're kind of in this freak-out mode. Does Jesus not care about our safety? Why is Jesus taking us there to die? That's surely what's going to happen. Maybe we made a mistake three years ago saying yes to following after him. And again, you see, too much focus on the past, too much focus on the future. We're not staying present, and it becomes this unhealthy thing. We are absolutely lacking an enduring faith, a steadfast faith. Jesus is trying to develop within us a faith that continues to stay present with Jesus in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves going through. So we're starting a new message series this weekend, the Gospel of Mark, and the hashtag for this is Sing Along. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, John is a gospel writer who's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a lot more of a poet almost lyrical in the way that he writes about the life of Jesus. And, and there's, he's an artist. There's something about songs 
that kind of get right to the heart of the matter. And so I've asked Eli and Kyle to come out and sing a song for us, and it's a song you're probably going to be familiar with. If you want to sing along with it, feel uh, more than free and welcome to sing along with it. But the reason we're doing this, the reason we're doing this is so that you could take some time in the midst of whatever trouble you find yourself in, asking Jesus to help you develop a faith that endures, a faith that stays present with Jesus. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans you made put an end to you.
Thanks, fellas. If only we had talented staff around here. Really help out. Did you notice the lyrics to the start of the second verse? Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. I won't make it any other way. So James Taylor was doing some Greek study in the book of James from the New Testament, and he was leaking into the Greek around in... No, he wasn't. <laughs> but that's exactly what we're talking about, right? A faith that endures, a faith that helps us stand firm no matter what's going on. I won't make it any other way. I don't know how anybody makes it without Jesus, without the love that he displays that is consistent, that is steadfast, that is filled with compassion. So they're making their way from hiding to uh, Bethany to see Lazarus, to see this family, to see their close friends. And they get there and they see the grief. And then we get the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. If, if the disciples wondered, does Jesus really love Lazarus? Does Jesus really love us? That question gets answered in Bethany. Let's read the next verse together, verse 36. It's on the screen. Read it with me. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. See how much he loved him. So it's the Lenten season. We have a mission project trying to raise $500,000 for Habitat for Humanity to transform a neighborhood. Why are we doing this? Not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say we raised half a million dollars. No, so that the people of that community, real people, men and women with real lives, so they would know there's a God who loves them. Uh, this last Wednesday night, it was service night for student ministry. Uh, Power Life, our ministry for middle school students, and Ignition, our ministry for high school students. If there's any uh, Power Life and Ignition students or volunteers here, I want you to come up and we're going to uh, pray a blessing over some of the service projects they did. Don't be afraid. You can come on up. It'll be great. Uh, anyway, as they're coming up, as they're coming up, as they're coming up, let me tell you a little bit about what they did. Man, we, they all came to the 8 o'clock service because they love to get up early. Yeah, thank you. Come on up. So, you come all the way up. Come all the way up. They, they did a lot of different projects. They made 12,000 meals for Meals from the Heartland. Some of them gathered on-site. Some of them gathered off-site with their uh, small groups. Uh, they made sandwiches that will be distributed to the homeless in our community uh, here in, in central Iowa. Uh, some of the groups made blankets. And the blankets uh, are going to go to organizations like the Children's Cancer Center, uh, the DHS, and to the Ronald McDonald House. Uh, this week I was on the phone with a family from our church. Uh, who are gonna, They're going to be spending the next two months at the Ronald McDonald House in Iowa City. Son was born prematurely, and so while he gets stronger and healthy enough to come home, uh, that's where they're going to be. And so we want to pray, not just for the blankets... Uh, but for the food, for the gifts, for the service that these students and their uh, adult volunteers did. But mostly we want to pray for the people on the receiving end. So if you would join me, in fact, if you can get up here and put your hand on this, that would be great, gather around. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for uh, the serving hearts of the people, the students of this congregation, and the leaders and the staff who are guiding them and helping them. And we pray for blankets and for food and, and for uh, chairs that people are sitting on that, that got cleaned this week. We pray that the people who are on the receiving end of this service and of this gift, that something would happen inside them through the power of your Holy Spirit when they receive this, these gifts and that they would know deep within them that there is a God who loves them. See how much he loved him. 
So Lord, help us know your love and help us share your love with the world around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Praise God for our students and their leaders. I was thinking about myself as a student, you know, middle school, high school, college student, and how would I describe my faith? I would not describe it as a faith that endures. I would probably describe it as an immature faith. I, I, I had a lot more faith in the wisdom of Jack Handy's deep thoughts on Saturday Night Live than I did <laughs> the wisdom of Scripture. Uh, he says, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. And if he asked why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is, probably because of something you did. <laughs> I'm not recommending you do that. Uh, it's funny. And then if you just stop and think about it for a minute, it's horribly bad theology. And, and Jack Handy wasn't trying to be a th theologian, he was trying to be a comedian. But too many of us, we actually buy this as our primary way of understanding who God is. It was the primary way of understanding how God worked in the world in Jesus' day. Uh, two chapters earlier in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they walk by a guy who is blind and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because we know anything that bad that happens in life is the result of somebody's sin. And anything good that happens in our life, it's because we're so good. We're so obedient. We're so righteous. And Jesus stops and he teaches and he says, no, 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 you're missing the point. This blindness is all about the glory of God being displayed. And the blind man ends up receiving his sight. John chapter 11, Jesus is doing the same thing. The point is, how do we display the glory of God? And so Jesus weeps in John chapter 11, absolutely. That's not the only emotion he has. And another emotion he has is anger, deep anger. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. That's verse 33. Two verses later, he weeps. Three verses after that in verse 38, he's at the entrance to Lazarus' tomb, and John writes, he is still angry. And the Greek word for angry is kind of a fun word, embrimaomai. And if you look how it's used, not in scripture necessarily, but in kind of classical Greek literature, it more often is used to describe a war horse on a battlefield. And the idea behind this word is think of and imagine and listen to what, what would it be like to be around the snorting of a stallion about to charge the enemy. Can you just kind of imagine what that... <laughs> Maybe something like... Does that... Are you ready? No. Embramai, oh my. The snorting. Jesus is filled with this when he gets to Lazarus' grave. He is ready to go into battle against an enemy that's really powerful. And so biblical scholars are like, who's he mad at? What's he angry about? He's angry at Satan. John chapter 10. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, Jesus says. Have life in abundance, but there is an enemy, the thief, who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus knows he's in a battle against that thief, against that enemy. Battle against this biggest power that we face in our life, the power of death. Jesus knows he has to conquer it. And so he's ready for battle. He's filled with deep anger. 
And one of the things that I think is just so beautiful about Jesus, I mean, love God with everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's able to stay present. He, he's angry one verse. He's weeping the next verse. He's still angry three verses later. It's not one or the other. It's all of it, all at the same time. There's a docu-series on the life of Jesus right now on uh, the History Channel. And so I want you to watch about this three-minute clip, how they talk about uh, this story of Lazarus. And I think they do a pretty good job capturing uh, the weeping Jesus. I'm not sure they do a great job capturing the warrior Jesus, but there's still some really good stuff for us to think about in this clip. Take a look. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the New Testament, but speaks to the long tradition of human suffering. Jesus experiences the pain, the tragedy, and the grief of a loving and caring Savior. Where have you laid him? Come and see, my Lord. I think that as Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb, Mary and Martha are simply expecting him to join the mourners. Take away the stone. What does Martha say? Lord, let's not open the tomb. There will be a bad smell. She's not expecting resurrection on the spot, even when they go to the tomb. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? What was going through the mind of Mary and Martha when they saw their brother raised from the dead? They were probably stupefied beyond words. This is one reason Jesus has to say to the crowd, untie him and let him go. They probably were so shocked they couldn't even move. Lazarus was sick and eventually died, Jewish theology would have understood that this was what God ordained. So when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, he was essentially overturning what God ordained. Which says that maybe his claims that he's the son of God are believable. And that made him an enormous threat to the religious establishment. Maybe Jesus is believable. 
It's what he says to his disciples as they make their way to Bethany. Now you will really believe. And his brother James says, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. A faith that stays present with Jesus every moment, no matter what the moment brings. I was so impressed with uh, Tony Bennett, the coach of Virginia, last year after that you know, historic loss. And in the days that followed, it became really clear. Part of the reason he was able to respond the way he responded has everything to do with his faith. Uh, he's built this program at the University of Virginia on five pillars, uh, humility, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. These are principles he takes right out of the pages of Scripture. Uh, he said before he went into coaching, he was considering uh, being a pastor, which is interesting because before I became a pastor, I was considering being Harlem Globetrotter. No. Uh, <laughs> In a very real way, he pastors his players. He prays for them. He understands they're in college, they're on a journey. He's respectful of that. But he says his prayer for them is that they would discover the truth that transformed his life. And that truth is a person, Jesus Christ. And so uh, this year they made the tournament again as a number one seed. Their first game against Gardner-Webb, the 16th seed, they were behind at halftime. And it looked like it was going to happen again for the second time in history. The same team, number one seed, losing. To, but they came back and they won. They made it to the final four. And they played last night. I don't know if you uh, heard or watched the game. But I left church last night thinking, boy, I hope Virginia wins. It'll make the sermon a little better uh, you know, tomorrow. And they were up by 10 points. So I'm like, okay, we got this. And then Auburn scored the next 14. And, and then there was a resurrection. And the... Uh, <laughs> The officials helped with it a little bit, but, you know, whatever it takes. So anyway, they're playing for the championship tomorrow night. I want you to listen. Uh, this is Coach Bennett talking this year about peace and contentment and where it comes from. Whether he wins or whether he loses, he has found a faith that endures. Take a look. You certainly feel things, things bother you, but where does peace and perspective come from? And I always tell our guys... Um, it's, it's got to be something that is unconditional. And I know I have that in the love of my family. Um, unconditional acceptance and love. That's huge. And I know I have that in my faith in Christ. That's for me where I draw my strength from, my, my peace, my steadiness in the midst of things. Um, but of course you feel things. Of course you, you desperately want things to go well and it's frustrating when you're not. And, and you step back and look at it. But I think I always challenge our guys, what's your secret of contentment? What's your secret of contentment? Because there's going to be times it talks about you're going to be well-fed and living in plenty, and there's going to be times where you're going to be starving and living in want. Um, what's your secret of handling that? And that I know without a doubt, those of us who have parents or kids that, that love you, give them unconditionally, or if, if the, your faith is there, that has to buoy you, and that has to be your center, and you dwell on what is good because there is a bigger picture to all this, and I, I believe I understand that. So, you know, going through those refining moments, whew, they're tough, but you look back at them in a way they're sometimes painful gifts that draw you nearer to what, what truly mattered. Interesting choice of words there at the end. Painful gift. That's what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed. Jesus took some bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later on in the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. 
Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.